Now let us begin with the foundational habit, habit one, be proactive. Habit one, be proactive, basically means that your life is a product of your values, not your feelings. Again, that your life is a product of your values, not your feelings. Your life is a product of your decisions, not your conditions. To be proactive means you take the initiative to do whatever's necessary to make good things happen. In other words, you're the creative force of your own life. To use the computer metaphor, habit one is the awareness that you are the programmer. It is the budding awareness that the best way to predict your future is to create it. The opposite of being proactive is to be reactive, which basically means that your life is a function of your feelings, your moods, your impulses, or how other people treat you, such as taking out your anger on work associates or loved ones at home because you feel so frustrated. You feel victimized. You feel like you're under the control of other forces. Other people are doing it to you. They're doing you in. So you feel you have ample justification and reason to essentially say, I am what other people have made of me. I am what my past has made of me. I am what is happening to me from all around today. See, and then not to take responsibility. I yelled and I screamed and was very voracious about it and he just listened to me very carefully and nodded and said, I'm sorry, that was really inconsiderate of me. And I didn't know what to do. I said, I don't know what to do now. No one ever gave me that kind of response. You're supposed to yell back, see, and then we do this for a couple of days and it's over. And so that was a very clear picture that uh, between the stimulus and the response, I, I had something to do there. I had a choice to make. Habit one is the habit of awareness that I am a separate person from all that has happened to me, including all of my feelings, my moods, even my genetic makeup, and so forth. The underlying principle of habit one, be proactive, is to take responsibility. The concept is, you and I have the capacity to choose our response. I am responsible. I am response-able. But see, it's much easier to say, I am not responsible, than to say, I am irresponsible. Again, let's define habit one. Be proactive as the capacity to subordinate impulses, words, feelings, conditions, to values based on principles. You know we're tested every day in many little ways in the ordinary things in our life. And if we are proactive in those things, it gradually develops extraordinary capability in handling major setbacks or disappointments. We learn that we have the power to choose our attitude. We have the power to choose our own response in any given set of circumstances 
we can do nothing about. For instance, Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, imprisoned in the death camps of Nazi Germany because he was a Jew, experienced unbelievable indignities and tortures. He was raised in the Freudian tradition that you're basically a product of your childhood and that you can do nothing about it. While he was in the death camps, he began to observe some very interesting things. Some people acted as animals and others acted as saints in the same circumstances. He himself experienced terrible things. Some of his own loved ones were cremated and he expected perhaps the same fate for himself. But for some reason, they saved him for experimental purposes. One day, they stripped him naked, put him under white light, and began to perform those ignoble sterilization experiments upon his body. This is when he discovered what he called the last of the human freedoms. That is, the power to choose one's own response to any condition, to anything that happens. And he cultivated the sense of meaning and self-awareness so that during his very torture, he saw himself in his imagination lecturing to his students in Austria following his release from the death camps about the very experiences he was having at the time, about the insights and learnings he was acquiring. And he came to postulate that the highest value of all is to choose your attitude in situations over which you have no control. In other words, between what happens to us, the stimulus, and our response to the stimulus is a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in those choices lie our growth and our happiness. Let me say that again, because this is so fundamental. Between what happens to us, the stimulus, and our response to the stimulus is a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in those choices lie our growth and our happiness. This is what Viktor Frankl discovered, and through exercising his memory, that is his self-awareness, and his imagination, and his conscience, by asking questions such as, what is this situation asking of me, instead of, what do I ask of it? Why are they doing this to me, and so forth. And also by exercising his own independent will, this freedom within became greater and greater until his freedom was in a sense greater than his Nazi captors, not his liberty. You see, liberty is a condition of the environment, of the external environment. Freedom is a condition of the person, of one's internal power to exercise options. We have control over our freedom, but we do not, in the short run, have control over our liberty. However, in many situations, not necessarily all, the more you control your freedom and expand and deepen it, eventually it will influence the liberty in your life. That is, the options, the alternatives that are available to you. In other words, eventually your head will create your world. Your response to the stimulus will eventually influence the stimulus. And to some degree, Viktor Frankl experienced that. Dr. Frankl also tried to look at the hypothesis of what enabled these people in the death camps to survive. Was it their survival skills? No, that was secondary. Was it their intelligence? 
again, secondary? Was it their present health, again, secondary? These things were eventually equalized and lost. They helped a little initially, but eventually they were gone. The thing that enabled survival was a vision of the future, a sense of meaning about a work yet to do, a contribution yet to make. And this became the basis for his brilliant autobiographical account of these experiences called Man's Search for Meaning. So we must not let the things we can do nothing about interfere with the things we can do a great deal about. Because remember, between stimulus and response is our greatest power, our freedom to choose. Now as we go into habit two, begin with the end in mind. Let me first try to put it in perspective with habit one. To use the computer metaphor again, habit one basically says you are the programmer. Habit two, begin with the end in mind, says, write the program. You see, if you're the programmer, then write it. Don't just live some other program out that you don't feel meets your needs and your values. You decide it, you write it. Look at it this way for a moment. Habit one is the habit of personal vision. That is, you have a vision or a personal sense that you have this internal power to choose your response and that you can choose it on the basis of values. But notice that assumes values. That assumes a self-chosen value system. That's what habit two is. Habit two is the habit of personal leadership. It's based upon that vision, but it's the program that you write for yourself. You take leadership in your own life, in your family life, in your work life. Leadership deals with the direction of one's life. You decide your value system. Habit two is based on the principle of personal leadership, of purpose, of mental creation, and of mission. The opposite of habit two is to do no intellectual creation, to have no sense of mission, to do no envisioning of the future, to just kind of let life happen, to go with the flow with no particular focus, to begin with no particular objective in mind. So the second habit, to begin with the end in mind, is in a sense the test of our meaning. What is our life about? What is our identity? It is not to abandon ourselves and to live out the programs that others have given to us and then blame them for how poor those programs were. An interesting thing about life is that it is always created twice. Always. You see, the first creation is an intellectual creation. The first creation is of the mind and of the spirit. The second creation is a physical creation. The home or office or car that you're in right now was mentally created in every detail and the plan reduced to a blueprint before it was actually physically created. The carpenter's rule is measure twice, cut once. In other words, you've got to make sure the blueprint, the first creation, is really what you want and that you've thought through everything. Obviously, the key is to begin with the end in mind. I think you can see the applicability of this idea to any field of endeavor. I mean, how useful is it that you have the end in mind when you're doing, say, a jigsaw puzzle? How useful is it that everyone has the same end in mind? You begin each project with the end in mind. You begin each day with the end in mind. You exercise with the end in mind. You go into a meeting with the end in mind. Not necessarily that your decision is accepted, but that the group together produces the best decision and strengthens their relationship. 
In other words, this concept of begin with the end in mind applies to everything we do in our lives, from our professional life to our personal and family life. This is so basic with families and organizations. The fundamental reason, the root reason why families split up and organizations fail is that its members do not share a common vision. What if everybody participated to create that vision and purpose and worked to create it over a period of time to where they really owned it? They felt it. This is our vision. We share it together. To begin with the end in mind is the most important decision and the most significant decision. Why? Because every other decision, large and small, will be influenced by that decision. What are the principles I want to operate my life on? What are the principles we want our family to operate on? What are the principles we want our organization to operate on? You see, you're deciding what are the things that are truly important. This is a very fundamental principle, so that you have a continuing sense of guidance in your life. Then you don't end up climbing that proverbial ladder that is leaning against the wrong wall. I suggest that the highest essence of habit two, to begin with the end in mind, is the development of a personal mission statement, a personal purpose statement, whatever you want to call it, and also the development of a family mission statement. I seriously think that is the most important activity of habit two. Likewise, I would encourage organizations to develop a mission statement for the entire organization, for a department, for a team, for a board, for a committee. I think it should contain two basic parts, vision and principles. Vision deals with the mental picture of what you are about, and principles deal with how you go about it. In organizations, we ask, what is this organization about? What is its essential purpose or mission? Then we also ask, what does it value that represents its changeless core? See, those are the two parts, vision and principle-centered values. An organizational mission statement is vital for two reasons. First of all, if you don't know where the organization's going and how they're going to get there and where you fit into that picture, or if you do, then when you're struggling with who you are and where you're going and how you're going to get there, if they're not aligned and you're not working toward the same common goal, you're going to have problems. Another significant piece for me has been in writing the mission statement. In the career planning process, I was starting to identify themes in my life and important things for me. But then in the fall, when I wrote my first mission statement, um, I kind of captured all of that, but a whole bunch of other stuff too. And so I ended up with this page-long mission statement that wasn't very workable. And then a couple months later, I sat down and did a one-liner mission statement. And I found that didn't quite get it. And to now take another time out and just that exercise, the five minutes of writing about what's really important to me, it all kind of gelled and I was able to kind of get that happy medium and I feel like I've got 80% now of my final mission statement.
My dream is that I'll have a family that when they grow up, they will still want to come home. They'll want to come home more than they want to go anywhere else. By home, I mean back to the, the grandparent home, the home where Marilyn and myself are. That they'll come home and just the cousins will like the cousins and they'll like their aunts and uncles and they'll just grow up that way. And my overall dream is that after Marilyn and myself have died, that they'll still want to come home. They'll just want to see each other and it won't kind of come apart when we leave. That's the kind of family I want to have. long-range thing, but that's my overriding goal. This is profound, deep work. You have to really work to get perspective, though. It takes time. You have to be patient. We should give ourselves several months, at least weeks. We must pay a price as we cultivate this sense of vision, this purpose. Remember also that vision is different than principles. Vision is different than values. Vision requires an enormous amount of self-awareness and of imagination and of humility, of openness, and also of the use of conscience. As Viktor Frankl put it, the thing I learned is that you don't invent your mission. You detect it. You uncover it, as it were. Everyone has special gifts and unique qualities and characteristics, and they need to work until, in a sense, they inwardly detect it. What are your unique gifts? Use self-knowledge, take time, listen within, and listen also to those who see the potential in you. Sense their affirmation of you. Study the lives of people who have inspired you. What is it you so admired about them? so that little by little you can get a sense of what principles you yourself want to build upon. And think about what contributions are important to you and what growth and development is essential to make those contributions. I remember watching on television General Schwarzkopf at the end of the Gulf War was asked by a television interviewer what he would like to have his epitaph say. He responded, a good soldier who served his country and loved his family. I just think about those few words. They really comprise many, many guiding principles, guiding criteria for his life. I don't know if that was a spontaneous response or whether he had thought about that before, but it's an interesting statement. A good soldier who served his country and loved his family. The principle of service, of love, of goodness, of integrity, the different roles in his life, his country, his family. See, really, even though it's very short, it contains so much. Now let me give some basic characteristics of a good mission statement, whether they be personal, family, or organizational mission statements. One, they should be timeless. You see, goals are not timeless, so they should not include goals. Goals will change, strategies will change. Goals and strategies will reflect the realities of the present situation. Mission statements should reflect the realities of the situation, but also should be changeless. We also ask, what are the principles upon which we operate regardless of what the situation is about? 
That's what gives permanence. That's what gives us a changeless core. And that's what enables people to live with change because they have something inside that never changes. You can deal with the changes inside people, inside an organization, and inside the environment. So I would say first write it as if it will never be changed. Now I've also learned that as you mature and as your consciousness expands and deepens, you will find that you will gradually also strengthen and deepen and improve your mission statement. But always write it at any stage as if it will never change, as if it were timeless. It causes you to think differently than the way you think about goals and plans and strategies. Let me share with you a second criterion of a good mission statement. It should deal with both ends and means. Ends have to do with what it is we are about. Means have to do with how we go about it. In other words, what are the principles we operate to achieve those ends, that vision? You see, ends and means are really inseparable because you can never achieve a worthy end with an unworthy means. Ends pre-exist in the means. Many mission statements are only wish statements or dream statements because they don't deal with means at all. Others deal only with means, their value statements, and they don't deal with ends. The key to one is always the other, the ends and the means being inseparable. Consider now a third criterion of developing good mission statements. It should deal with all four of our needs. Let me mention what these four needs are. To live, to learn, to love, and to leave a legacy. The need to live has to do with our body and the welfare of our family, the economics we might call it, the need to live. And then we have the need to love and to be loved, to belong, to be accepted, to be part of something, to have people care about you and that you care about them. This taps into this whole culture area, the social need, the relationship need. The third need is the need to keep growing, the need to learn, to develop, to have your talents be identified, to be used, to be recognized when they're used. And the fourth need is the spiritual need for meaning, to leave a legacy, that your life matters, that you make a difference, that you add value, the need for meaning is an enormous need in all people. For those that don't believe this, just try sometime throwing their work out the window and see how they feel about it. Sometimes you see people lose a loved one, let's say in a tragic accident or a terrible disease. Then watch if they don't try to make that life meaningful by going to some cause to understand the disease, to research the disease, or to engage in the fight against drunk driving or whatever. In other words, they need some cause, some meaning that could be attached to that person's life. Think about it and you realize that there is enormous need in all of us to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. Finally, the fourth criterion of a good mission statement is that it should either implicitly or explicitly deal with all of the roles of your life. You don't want to neglect any one of your roles. In my personal life, I have the role of being a husband, a father. I have the role of being a manager. 
I have the role of being a teacher, of being a writer. I have the role of being a community worker, a neighbor, a church worker. And all of these roles are important to me. We need to lead a balanced life. And to lead a balanced life, we need to think through all those roles and in some way include them in our mission statements. I suggest these four elements are the fundamental criteria of good mission statements, not only for individuals, but also for families and organizations. I cannot, by the way, say enough about the significance and power of a family mission statement in becoming an extremely integrative, cohesive, motivating, and uplifting activity and source of direction. I know in our own family life it has had a profound experience. We did it many, many years ago and we developed our family mission statement over the course of about eight months. Everyone participated. Even my own mother was involved and today we have grandchildren and they have become part of it. So that represents four generations involved in this mission statement. I don't have the words to describe the incalculable benefits that have come from this process and this involvement. In fact, the process was as important as the content of the mission statement itself. Our family mission statement reads like this, and remember, it's only an example. It is not the example. It's just one other family's mission statement. The mission of our family is to create a nurturing place of faith, order, truth, love, happiness, and relaxation, and to provide opportunity for each person to become responsibly independent and effectively interdependent in order to serve worthy purposes in society. Now in the intervening years, we have used that as a kind of family constitution so that we constantly go back to and reaffirm into our own frame of mind and heart the basic principles it contains. We have it in our family room and we examine ourselves against it and many times we identify our weaknesses, even our hypocrisies, but we always go back to it and try to live by it. The effort to develop and to live by a mission statement leads to a sense of empowerment in family members and empowerment and greater trust in the work culture as well. You don't have to get on people's backs. You don't have to hover over and check up and follow through. All those other carrot and stick kinds of motivational techniques are obsoleted by having this internal sense of what we are about this fire within that comes from a well-developed mission statement. But let me share with you three no-no's about developing mission statements. I've learned from observation, from sad experience. First, don't rush them. Don't be into efficiency. Second, don't announce them or try to install them. Always invite deep involvement and deep participation from everyone in the family or the organization. Third, don't ignore them. In other words, act upon them. You put your mission statement where it can be examined and explored, and where you can go and study it against your behavior to see how well you're living up to it and what you need to do to improve. To sum up, I would make certain that my own personal mission statement is intact first. Then I would work on developing a family mission statement. If my family is just my spouse, I would work on developing it with my spouse so that we had our own mature way of how to deal with problems 
and how to nurture our own immune system so that we can handle any problems that may come along. So I commend to you the process of long-term thinking, long-term planning, long-term envisioning, so that you gradually build very powerful, personal, and family and organizational mission statements that surround the accomplishment of worthy purposes. To me, that is the essence of true leadership. Now let's quickly review. Habit one, be proactive, is the awareness that you are the programmer. Habit two, begin with the end in mind, is where you write the program. Habit three, is where you run it. In other words, you execute around it. The third habit is to put first things first. The opposite of habit three, to put first things first, is to put second or third things first. Or to put first things second. In a sense, you become bogged down in what is called the thick of thin things. Goethe said it this way, things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. Now habit three, put first things first, is the test of our integrity. Can we walk by those first things? You see in a very real sense, the second habit, begin with the end in mind, decides what the first things are. And the third habit, put first things first, is that habit of our discipline and our commitment to live by those first things. Thus, it is the habit of integrity, the habit of keeping our lives integrated. In other words, we walk our talk. That's the real challenge and the true test of our integrity and our maturity. Habit three would be the management principle of putting first things first, where habit two is the leadership principle in deciding what the first things are. In other words, in habit three, you organize and execute around the priorities you decided on in habit two. Now essentially, habit three, to put first things first, is the paradigm or way of thinking which focuses upon relationships rather than schedules. Why? Because people in relationships are the first things. And almost all people will come to that. The traditional paradigm or way of thinking in the field of time management has always dealt with time, with scheduling, with control, with efficiency. That is, doing more things faster. You see, that paradigm is focused on efficiency and control. It is called time management. You manage your time. The clock is its symbol. It drives us toward efficiency. Have you ever tried to be efficient with a loved one on a tough issue? How did it go? You ever do it with your spouse? How did it go? You ever do it with a difficult teenage situation? How did that one go? You see, right off the bat, you already know how foolish it is. But look at the paradigm that drives it. When it doesn't work, what do we do? We try to do it better. We try to do it more efficiently, more quickly. I had a boy one time that was into this kind of efficiency approach. He finally decided that the girl he was going with, the relationship wouldn't work out. So he put it down on his list of something to do for that day. Drop Margaret. In other words, study for this final exam, drop off this paper, then drop Margaret, then take this test in sociology. I mean, she was one of the many items. Now, because there'd been a deep feeling for each other for a period of time, he had scheduled 15 or 20 minutes for the visit. And he wanted to do it over the phone so that if she cried, she wouldn't be so embarrassed and 
also that he could handle it rather dispassionately and efficiently. So he calls her up. Hi, Margaret. How you doing? How's your test going? Oh, yeah, I... That was really a bear, and I just, I don't know what to do about that. And what, what about your situation? You got two more tests, huh? You prepared for them? Oh, yeah. And then he looks at his watch, and he notices he used about five minutes in all this nice social talk. And then inwardly, he said to himself, now I've got to get to the hard part. So he says, uh, excuse me, Margaret, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, you know, our, our relationship with each other and everything, and... Uh, I, I just don't know uh, if it's the way we should go. I've given a lot of thought to our relationship, and I'm sure you have as well, and I just feel like maybe it's just best that we just be friends. You know, you know what I mean, Margaret? Margaret, are you there? Now don't, don't be offended, Margaret. I, I, I really do care for you. I just feel like that maybe a friendship would be the best way to go in the long run. She was very upset, very emotional, and he just simply had to go over to her house. But really, talk about the disruption of his schedule. You see, we try to be nice, we try to be positive, but the underlying paradigm, which is not questioned, it's just an assumption, is one of control and efficiency. But we're right, and the other is wrong, and gradually, you turn people into a thing. Remember again, with people, Fast is slow, and slow is fast, yet it's effective. We want effectiveness with people, and we want efficiency with things. People are not things. Now the paradigm I'm trying to teach is symbolized by a compass, not a clock, and it is based upon a sense of focusing upon the first things in our lives, and they're always relationships. This is also true in business relationship with customers, associates, and so forth. And the essence of all effectiveness basically deals with people and with relationships. And ultimately, these are governed by a moral sense of principles, that is, of what is right and what is wrong, and of integrity around those principles. This requires all of us to be sufficiently open and humble, to just get into this kind of pair of glasses, this new frame of reference, this new paradigm, this new map that is based upon relationships, not schedules. Based upon principles, not values. Based upon leadership first, then management. Based upon a compass, and then a clock. A good practical way of doing this is to write down on a piece of paper what to you are the most important things. The first things in your life the supremely important things. Now we're speaking of things in a generic sense, such as people, relationships, family, health, integrity, service, and so forth. What are your first things? Just list five or six. This takes real deep thinking because you have to prioritize. In fact, you may wish to even pause this program momentarily while you do this little exercise. education, and a good financial basis to operate from. The most important things to me are my family, and not just my immediate family, but my um, sister and my mom that doesn't live with me, my church, my children, my husband. First things for me are my family. I'm the youngest of nine, and 
no matter where I'm at in the world, just to be able to know that they're there. Family, God, career, people, those are primary. Those always take about the top. The first things in my life are personal and spiritual development, relationships, and work. Okay, now continue this prioritization. And this is the toughest part of the thinking process. What do you think is number one? Then number two? Then three, four, five, and so forth. One effective way is to just cut out one. What would it be? Then cut out another one. Until you get down to that which is most important. Another way to get at this is to answer two questions. Think of one activity that you absolutely know that if you did it superbly well and consistently would produce marvelous results in your personal or family life. Now think of one activity in your work or professional life that you know that if you did it superbly well and consistently would produce marvelous results. In other words, Think of activities in your personal and your work life that help us to secure the first things you've already identified. Now that you've written down what the first things are and you've written down what is the one activity in your personal and in your work life that you absolutely know that if you did it superbly well, you would produce marvelous results, study that. Most of you put down in your first things your family, your loved ones. I know you do. I've done this all over the world and that's what most people put down. You'll also find that you also wrote down about the same activities that would produce marvelous results. You'd focus on preparation, on prevention, on value clarification, on planning, on relationship building, on deep communication with the key people in your lives. You may have used different words, but the underlying meanings are almost always the same, everywhere. The point that we're trying to get across here is that we shift to this new paradigm, which is a way of thinking based upon principles and relationships rather than things and schedules. In other words, based on leadership first, then management. Based on relationships first, then schedules. Based upon a compass, then a clock. Now, if you take out the little listener's guide that came with the program, you'll see a chart in there showing four quadrants I call the time management matrix. The key words to understand are importance and urgency. Importance basically comes from within you. Importance is your value system, hopefully based on principles. Importance is your mission, your central strategy to accomplish those high priority goals and the plans to implement that strategy. Urgency comes from the environment. It presses upon you. It's proximate, it's right in front of you and it's often very popular. It could be deep into a social value system. It's urgent. It has the appearance of requiring immediate attention. Now you have to decide what is truly important in your life. That's why I asked you, now notice the question, what are the most important things to you, your first things? And then I asked, what are the single activities that you know without any question that by doing those consistently, superbly well, you'd accomplish marvelous results. See, you've identified what's important. Now, quadrant one, you'll notice, is both urgent and important. 
These are usually called problems or crises. Putting out fires, sometimes these quadrant one activities are deadline driven. So it's either a present problem or a problem in the making if you neglect it. Quadrant two is not urgent, but it is important. Prevention is not urgent, but is that important? Very important, critically important? Absolutely. So quadrant two would include prevention, as well as preparation, planning, relationship building, empowerment, self-development, developing mission statements and the like. You see, quadrant two is the leadership quadrant. Now quadrant three is not important, but it is urgent. It includes many proximate pressing matters and many popular activities, interruptions, other people's expectations. So all these quadrant three activities are not important, but they have the appearance of urgency. Finally, quadrant four is neither urgent or important. This usually includes irrelevant phone calls and mail, busy work, time wasters such as excessive TV, and so again, quadrant four is neither urgent nor important. All right now, looking at your paper, and looking at your answers to those two questions, what quadrant were those answers in? What would you say? It had to be either one or two, but why is almost every answer in two? Because you're not doing them. And why? Because they're not urgent. The whole popular culture has so defined urgency as important that we end up neglecting that which is important but not urgent. Relationship building, deep communication with the key people at home and at work, planning, preparation, getting a clear sense of mission or priorities, etc. In fact, you examine most executive agendas, most agendas of any meeting against the four quadrants, and you'll find almost all of them are quadrants one and three. Quadrant two is usually called other business. And what happens to it? It gets pushed aside by quadrants one and three. So where do you get time for quadrant two when you're inundated by quadrant one things? that are both important and urgent. You neglect quadrants three and four. You literally, smilingly neglect them. Those things which are not important, you literally say no, because things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. You'll have the power to do this, this quadrant two work, when there is a burning yes inside you about your mission and purpose and value system. You can literally say no to all kinds of unimportant, however urgent other things may be. A phone call comes up, did you come to this business meeting? I would like to, however, I have a prior commitment. Even if that commitment is to yourself for planning, preparing, When people sense your quadrant two orientation, they begin to see you differently. 
He just won't come and throw urgent but unimportant things at you. Quadrant three things, like they used to. This happened to me one time with a manager who reported to me. I gave him some very urgent things that really were not that important. And he said, sure, I'll work if you want. He pulled down his project board. I saw all of his projects, deadline dates, progress he'd made and so forth. And I realized I'm dealing with someone who has purpose and organization here. I'm not going to mess up this person's life and get involved in reordering his system. I'd have to carry that responsibility. So I just simply said, don't worry about it. I'll find someone else. And I was thinking in terms of some crisis management. Now, what if it's your boss that gives you a Quadrant 3 project? By definition, remember this. What is important to another person must be as important to you as the other person is to you. If your boss is important to you, then what is important to your boss must also be important to you, by definition. That makes it a quadrant one issue. The key is to focus on what truly is important and to say no to the rest, no matter how urgent. Now when you do that, it is tremendous because you have quadrant two under your belt. You have a clear sense of purpose. You're saying yes so strongly to things that matter most. It's easy to say no to the other things. organized and undisciplined and haven't paid the price in coming up with a mission statement and with a clear sense of their own goals and priorities, they're going to be distracted by almost anything that comes their way. Now let me suggest a practical way to implement what we've been talking about in this area of putting first things first in our lives. And by the way, I recommend that you get some sort of scheduling tool if you don't already have one. The Seven Habits Organizer is ideal because the six-step process I'm going to take you through is built right into the structure of the organizer itself. Now let me go through the six-step process with you, assuming you're using some kind of an organizing tool. Step number one, connect to your mission. In other words, connect to your overall philosophy, your sense of what your life is about, your vision for your life and how you see yourself the kind of contribution, the kind of character, and the value system, which is hopefully centered upon principles. You connect to that first. That's where you have the burning yes about what your life is about that gives you the courage to say no to other things. Second. Study the roles that you have in your life. Most of these will have to do with relationships. Roles having to do with your family or community or the key roles that you have in your work. You may be a department head, you may be a manager, you may be a technician in a particular department, or you may be a member of an executive committee, you may be the CEO or whatever. 
That's the second activity, identify roles. Third, now select goals around each of those roles you identify. Fourth, now organize weekly. The smallest unit of planning would be a week. Not a day, otherwise you're just going to prioritize crises. And this weekly planning would be done in the context of a larger term plan. It would involve perhaps a month or a half a year or a full year. It's like taking a helicopter view. It's not when you're on the ground in a truck, slow moving truck going around each hour of every day. Nor are you in a large jet 30,000 feet off the ground. Most people think in terms of weeks. It's small enough to have a sense of perspective about what the big things are. And it's big enough so that you have perspective about the most important things. And yet it's small enough that you can think through how each day contributes to the overall week. Fifth, then exercise integrity in the moment of choice. That means you adapt on a daily basis, even on an hourly basis, even on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. On the basis of your principles, your integrity. You see, you have educated your conscience with principles, and you have this inward sense of what's right. You also have the inward sense of your vision. So no matter what comes up on a daily or hourly basis, you follow this conscience and you adapt instantly. That means your scheduling is very soft. You're hard on principles, but soft on scheduling. And the central principle surrounds people and relationships. So you are kind and respectful, and they will also reciprocate with respect. Sixth, you evaluate. You stand back and reflect, how's it going? Where do I need to adjust, to adapt more? What's happening here? Once again, let's go through these six steps. First, connect to your mission. Second, review your roles. Third, select a goal or goals for each role. Fourth, organize on a weekly basis. Fifth, use integrity in the moment of choice. And sixth, evaluate. Now remember, you organize this whole week within the context of a longer-term plan and within the context of your overall mission. Now when you have yourself so organized, you can relax because you know that you're going to have your private date with your daughter this week and when you're going to have it. You know when you're going to exercise. You know when you're going to have an opportunity to spend time with your spouse or other key people in your life.
cultivate and nurture those relationships. Why? Because you have a schedule it. And you take all of your other roles in work and community and so forth, and you've organized time for each one of them. In other words, you think through very carefully about each role and the goals you want to accomplish. Let's say that you have a daughter who's struggling in school, so you want to spend a little time with her and you schedule her. You have your son's game coming up, so you want to make sure you schedule that and not neglect it. But then also you have very important goals under each of your work roles, and you schedule them. Just notice the kind of control that you're getting and how everything is balanced. Now admittedly, things are going to come up you can't anticipate. That's where you have to adapt based upon your conscience, your integrity in the moment of choice. It's good to know that you've scheduled time for all the important first things of your life. Then you don't have to worry about it. You can relax and smile and say no to everything else. Unless changes come about, and they always do, so you consult your conscience and principles and you say, wait a minute, I hadn't anticipated this, something else has come up, it's really important. So you adapt and make the necessary changes. The point is that you operate on an overall vision and a sense of mission and principles. So you can relax and smile. All I can say is you'll never know the power of this until you really Habit four, think win-win, lies at the very heart of all relationships. Think win-win is the habit of mutual benefit. It is the habit of the golden rule. It is the habit of abundance. The underlying principle is abundance. In other words, there's plenty out there and to spare. So you don't have to be threatened by the strengths of other people. You can nurture competency around you higher than your own. It doesn't threaten you. You can share knowledge. You can share recognition. You can share gain and profit. Why? Because of abundance. But if people derive their sense of worth from being compared to the external, or from the social value system out there, or how well they stack up with others. They're always in a state of anxiety. They're always studying the pecking order. They're concerned about how they're dressed and how they look. They're into posturing and they're threatened by competency around them. They feel that if they share knowledge, they lose unique advantage. It gives others the same awareness that they have. They lose some of their power. And if they share power or gain, they feel like they have less. You know, it's like a piece of pie. There's only so much. If you get the recognition, I may not get it. I will have less. It is the paradigm of scarcity, not the paradigm of abundance. Most people have never had profound experiences with win-win people. They don't really believe there's such a thing as win-win. It's either you win or you lose. You're either tough or you're soft. You're strong or you're weak. 
They think in dichotomies, either or, and they'll become martyrs. They'll go for lose-win and call it win-win, particularly among so-called important people. And then they'll often take out their energy on the ones that they can control so that they're lose-win above them and win-lose below them. Then what happens at the side all depends on the moods and the ego of the people involved. Who's winning in your marriage? And what happens when your kids take you on? You take them on back? What about your employees? Who's winning there? Oftentimes, win-lose can become so vindictive, so acrimonious, that people literally are drenched in ego. And they don't even care if they lose as long as the other person loses. In fact, I remember a situation where a divorcee was just into such a win-lose spirit that he was told by the judge that he was to take half of his assets and sell them and give the other half to his ex-wife. So he took an $8,000 car, sold it for $50, so he could give her $25. You see, the win for him was twist that thing, see, make them pay. Some people almost temporarily buy so deeply into win-lose. And if both do, and they're drenched in ego, lose-lose inevitably results. In fact, in my opinion, in the long run, any win-lose approach or lose-win approach on essential jugular issues in the long run eventually will be useless and end up in lose-lose. Remember, principles ultimately will govern. So that if there's a spirit of acrimoniousness, a spirit of vindictiveness, a spirit of getting back, of getting even, it becomes a very deep violation with the universal principle of equity, of fairness, and of the golden rule. Can you begin to see that the roots of the win-win mindset comes deep out of the private victory of habits one, two, and three? You see, if the private victory is real and sincere, you're at peace, you're centered, you're anchored, you're rooted, you're established, your ego's not involved. Down deep, you're invulnerable, so you can afford to be vulnerable on the surface of your life and go for win-win. So habit four, to think win-win comes from the principle of abundance, not scarcity. Meaning the pie gets larger and larger and larger. In what way? Because through the interaction on a win-win basis, a transformation begins to take place in our natures to where we tap into more creativity, more resourcefulness, more ingenuity, more wisdom, more intelligence, deeper and deeper into the bowels of the organization. We see the problem differently, we define it differently. We come up with new alternatives that do tap into abundance instead of the one we've been considering that only was based upon scarcity. So that deeper in our marriage, deeper in our family life and in our organizations, this kind of win-win spirit can eventually bring about synergy. So that ultimately the whole is truly greater than the sum of the parts 
talk about this and we'll have it six later. Such an abundance mentality increases knowledge, increases power. And the earlier fears become unfounded. And if you maintain the attitude of thinking win-win and the skill and method of habit five to seek first to understand, then to be understood, you will create such interaction, such mutual understanding that leads to the fruit of habit six called synergy. New insights, new alternatives, new learnings, new heights. But it all has to start with the person. They have to begin to say, I'm going to go for win-win with people. One man said to me one time, Stephen, come on. I mean, the world just isn't like that. It sounds good, but really, it's a little idealistic. It's not like that out there in the real world. The world is not in cooperation. The world is in the competition. So win-win is just too much an ivy tower of theory and abstraction and idealism. So I said to him, I need to listen to you a little more. He said, all right, I'll tell you. We were renegotiating our lease arrangements with the mall operators and owners, and you counseled us as our consultant to go for win-win. We did. We were open, we were conciliatory, had a win-win spirit. They saw that as weakness, as softness. And then they took us to the cleaners. I said, well, why did you go for lose-win? He said, we didn't, we went for win-win. I said, didn't you just say they took you to the cleaners? Yeah. In other words, you lost and they won. That's right. Well, what's that called? I mean, really, it was like the lights had come on. We realized that what he called win-win was really lose-win. See, lose-win is not win-win at all. People who think in dichotomies believe that lose-win, being nice, being soft, is win-win because they haven't really experienced the creation of a new option, a new alternative that is far better than win-lose or lose-win, called win-win. In other words, my friends, win-win is so much tougher. It's much tougher than win-lose. Why? In the early stages, you have to be tough on yourself. You have to cultivate the empathy, the sensitivity, the openness, the consideration, and at the same time, to not capitulate, to not give in, to not give up. Win-win basically means we consent together. Now sometimes, it's not practical, I know that. So you merely agree to disagree agreeably. call this no deal. So you go for win-win or you go for no deal. It's not going to work out. I'm not going to sell to you. I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to buy from you or whatever. So no deal is certainly one of the options. Maybe at a later time you can come together in a win-win way on another issue. So if you're deeply committed to win-win or no deal, you can be absolutely open and honest. You have no hidden negotiation techniques. You just basically say, I want us both to win. 
That's not a whim as I see it, but I need to understand why it is a whim for you. Let me understand. Then back and forth, try to understand each other. And as you do that, genuinely, sincerely, something very dynamic happens. You move from a transactional to a transformational relationship. And the spirit of empathic understanding has a magical effect upon the human spirit and upon the quality of the relationship. Now listen to these five elements. The first is a clear description of desired results. If possible, a visual picture of those desired results. This takes time. You've got to spend time. It took me two weeks. Green and clean. So you can see those. But most of us are in such a rush, we just try to set up some deal real fast, and then nothing really happens. You've got to spend time. You've got to be patient. You've got to get visual and deep understanding. Oftentimes you can get them to make out their own quality statements of what the results will look like. Have them see it, to spend time with it. Don't push it, don't rush it, don't delegate when you're angry. In fact, don't even try to teach when you're angry. You've got to get a good relationship, a good emotional bank account, then set up the deal. When there's such a good emotional sense of well-being and a good quality relationship. Second, teach people the guidelines, including the no-nos. A no-no is something you shouldn't do. I didn't do this in the story with my son, but I could have. I could have said, son, don't paint it. That's a no-no. It's not allowed. You see, it would give the color green. In other words, anytime you have given someone a job and you know the failure paths, identify them. If you'll know that they'll get in trouble if they do this or that, tell them. Be open and honest about it. Don't hide it. It's a failure path. There's quicksand there. There's wild animals there. In other words, you don't have to have everyone reinvent the wheel every day to learn the hard way. The best way to learn is to learn from other people's mistakes, from their failure paths. But then on the other hand, you don't want to tell them what to do. You give them guidelines, legal, ethical, moral requirements, but don't tell them what methods to do. In the early stages, you might do a little, but gradually you want to move away from this so that they begin to take more and more responsibility toward results. So in other words, you tell them what not to do, but not what to do. You only give them guidelines, including the no-nos. It leaves every other option available and open to them and taps into their resourcefulness, their ingenuity, their creative energy to do whatever it takes within those guidelines to accomplish the desired results. Third, now identify the resources. In the story I just gave, 
I said, call on me, son. But in many situations, you may have other human resources or financial resources, budgetary resources, and so forth that you can call upon. Fourth, now identify how accountability is to be done. Set up an accountability agreement focused around the desired results. In other words, we agreed to walk around the yard twice a week and he would judge himself. Now the ball's at his toe. He's responsible. He needs to take the initiative. When you do this, people will be accountable against the criteria built into the upfront agreement of desired results. Finally, identify the consequences of what's going to happen, good or bad, based upon that accountability of how well the desired results were achieved. Now with my son, the only consequence was intrinsic, that is, in the quality of the thing done or the activity itself. But I wouldn't have hesitated to attach an allowance to it, which would be an extrinsic or social consequence. At that time in his life, he didn't seem to need an allowance. He wasn't concerned about it. But perhaps at another time, I wouldn't have hesitated to say, you judge yourself. But if the job is worth $2 a week and you do a superb job, then give yourself $3. Or not as well, maybe only a dollar. You judge yourself. Really, my experience has been if the relationship is good, people will be twice as tough on themselves as you would ever dare be. Why? You trust them. They don't want to violate that trust. So to summarize the essence of habit four, think win-win, it basically means that you try to cultivate in your own nature and character an abundant spirit. Then, in the relationship with another person, you're always pursuing mutual benefit so that both parties win. And then you try to create an environment surrounding that which nurtures the keeping of that relationship on a win-win basis. Win-win is a paradigm. It is a way of thinking about all relationships. Sometimes you may need to go for no deal, but realize in the long run, anything but win-win ultimately result in lose-lose.